0: Oh, hello there. So glad you could join me. My name is Benjamin Boyce, and this is either my podcast or my YouTube channel that you're tuning into. And on these channels, these stations, I interview people quite frequently. Today's guest is vocal Distance, who has been composing some brilliantly concise threads about the operative principles within social justice woke activism. Woke activism is kind of a mixture of a number of different theories that are kind of Evolved over time and are now quite ascendant and rooted deeply in various institutions from education to media and certain portions of the government if not the federal government, then at least the state government. So I had him on. I'm very fortunate to be one of the first people to interview him with a voice and a face attached to his thought processes. I have him on to give us a crash course in this ideology and also kind of test why is this something that we should be concerned about and how can we go about countering it. So without further ado, here is vocal distance. If you consider the response that you've been given and you contextualize it in Twitter being just these layers and layers of discourse like what is the inflection point what are you talking about or talking to generally speaking
1: I think that my the thing that I talk about um, I explain and teach about what it is that the woke social justice ideology and worldview teaches Or preaches maybe no that's a yeah that's what I do I take the woke ideology and the social justice ideology and I break it down and I clarify it for people so that they know and can see how the woke social justice people think about the world okay right it's it's you want. It's, it's good to get clear about the constellations of concepts that populate the motivational economy of the people who are running this stuff, right? And so you want to make sure that you can get a clear picture of exactly what it is that they're doing and how their concepts relate to each other and function, both so that you can understand what they're doing and also so that when they start applying certain tactics, you know how to deal with it.
0: Okay. And what do you think is the best metaphor to understand what this ideology is? Is ideology the right term? Can you define what an ideology is? Some people call it a religion. Is that a useful term or is it uh, too restraining?
1: Oh, I, I think – I mean James Lindsay wrote an excellent article. Um, I think it was published yesterday. It might have been the day before uh, where he discusses this – and he says that yeah, it is a postmodern religion. I I agree with that that analysis. I think he's right about that. I think, I think this is the postmodern equivalent of what a religion would be. I think that's exactly right. I think he nailed it.
0: Okay. And why do you think our particular society, being I guess North America, you're uh, northerner than I am, but why do you think that our society is susceptible to it, or why is it uh, suddenly so prominent?
1: Hmm. That's a great question. Um, why don't I tell you an origin story? Yeah. I love, I love that. This. So back um, – so, so social justice and wokeness is the fusion of a few things, uh, neo-Marxism, critical theory, uh, postmodernism, and activism, uh, the, the what we might call the activist or the protest movement of the far left all of those things now about i would say in 1996 there's a gentleman by the name of stanley who who is an evangelical theologian i have one of his books your theology for the community of god Um, but he wrote a book called a primer on postmodernism and what he said was the postmodern age is going to be upon us soon you all better get ready it's coming. This is what it says. Now, he was using the postmodernism of, it wasn't social justice at that time, it was the postmodernism of the 60s and 70s. It was Derrida, it was Foucault. There was a little bit of, of, you know, bell hooks was starting to write at that time. Kimberly Crenshaw had already written Mapping the Margins. So intersectionality was known about in the academy. It hadn't escaped yet and gotten into the larger society. So, and what he was talking about was the worldview. Um, this book, The the Transforming My Vision by James W. Sire, was originally published in 1976, and it's got a chapter in it on postmodernism. But in, in this book, um, uh, Sire is still citing the postmodernism of Derrida and Foucault, where they just deconstruct everything. There's no social justice aspect to it, yet that doesn't quite show up. So he's writing that, and then in about, I would say, 1999 or 2000, Brian McLaren writes a book called um, – more Ready Than You Realize, uh, Evangelism in the Postmodern Matrix. It's. I think it was also released as evangel- uh, Evangelism as Dance in the Postmodern Matrix. I think it was also called. And both of those guys were evangelicals. And both of those guys said um, – both of those guys were evangelicals and both of those guys said the postmodern age is coming and they were talking about worldview and that's the social constructivist worldview right where everything is socially constructed the epistemology is standpoint epistemology the epistemology of experience right the objective scientific method is gone Um, and we're just have competing stories and competing narratives right I mean we recognize this a little bit and we can get into more of that if you want but that's what they point at it was the worldview that was coming in the the ethics the morality of it um, that that wasn't so much what they were on about now grenz tried to build a theological system that could withstand the postmodern worldview and of course that just got deconstructed immediately oh, really? <laughs> right okay yeah, yeah. Of, of course i mean he uh um with john r frankie and john r frankie went eventually and got gets in at least in my view right into the whole social justice thing he wrote a uh a paper on post-colonial theory or, or wrote a, a paper with somebody for a journal of post-colonial theory. For those of you who don't know, post-colonial theory is another branch of postmodernism. So these guys are writing this, and they're saying that the post-modernism is coming. So when I went and got my first degree in theology between 2002 and 2006, that was the discussion. Yeah. They were telling that the postmodern worldview was coming, right? That's what they said. They said, look, they said the postmodern worldview is on its way. The postmodern worldview is here. The postmodern worldview is is rising up. It is it is becoming a part of us and it is the worldview that we are going to be living in. That that worldview. Evangelicals aren't necessarily known for being rigorous intellectuals. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, not. well that's that's my question. Why why do you think that the evangelicals had that insight? Uh what what was about their thinking that allowed them to see the the direction of things?
1: Oh, um well it wasn't the evangelicals it was a specific branch of evangelicalism and um it was it wasn't our whole branch that saw it It was one guy it was stan grins nobody else nobody else saw it coming it was literally just him and he wrote the book on it and then yelled about it and it got everyone's attention within the denomination right um and i think it was just because he was paying really really careful attention to what was being said in the academy and and he understood that these things trickle out of the academy so he was watching and when he said this, people were kind of like, nah, no, I don't know if postmodernism is going to show up. Because the atheist movement hit in, you know, in the mid-aughts, and people were like, these are moderns. Richard Dawkins is not postmodern. Sam Harris is not postmodern, right? So Grenz was early, but, but he was right. And the postmodern worldview that everything is socially constructed, gender is a social construct, anyone can switch um, – what matters is not science what matters is personal experience your lived experience these are the things that are important what is important is um, the we have to listen and believe the people with the lived experience we don't look at the objective reality because everyone is biased right yeah every everyone has their own opinion everyone has so it's it's the standpoint epistemology and who is believed well uh, in standpoint epistemology, we, do, we reverse the power hierarchy, right? We believe the people at the bottom. We believe the victim. We believe the oppressed person in society because they have the knowledge of what it is like to be oppressed, whereas you and I as as white males, uh, um, we wouldn't understand, right? Th- the worldview that undergirds that, that, the, that we can't grasp objectivity, that it is impossible to grasp objectivity that worldview they called out because they saw that coming now they didn't as as near as i can tell call out the social justice aspect of it that didn't come till later but they did call out the worldview aspect of it so that okay. was in i think 2000 to 2006 so i went on i went and i went to study philosophy and did some other things and in around 2012 2013 i saw this stuff start to creep up with the everyone is sexist everyone is racist And i was like okay this looks like a and at the time what I thought it was was a marriage of convenience between the postmoderns and um, the the critical theorists I thought this is a marriage of convenience these people don't agree but they're aligning because they both want to take on the the mainstream society right that's what I thought at the time so I guess it would have been in 2018 or maybe 2017 I think it was 2018 where uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose and Peter Boghossian did the grief and studies hoax. So re- remember, I finished up my degree in 2006. So this is 2018. This is 12 years later. And they say, "Yeah, this is postmodernism," and all these people on Twitter immediately pop up and say, "Postmodernism's dead." <laughs> and I, having my background, looked at it and remembered Grind's book, and I was like so i i popped up in in james's timeline and i said are you sure and he's like yes i was like i think you're right in fact fact i completely agree with you and the first book i sent him was the book by um oh what's his name it's called what would what would jesus deconstruct oh (laughs) right that was i think in 2004 and i sent james that i was like this is 2004 and he's like yep He goes, yes, this is the post, this is postmodernism, and he laughed, because the the SBC was starting to have uh, little shoots of uh, of postmodernism show up, and I was like, yeah, I, I I popped that up and I I sent that out, so so him and I began to talk a little bit just on over Twitter, and I said, and and James would, I would I would show him this, and he'd be like, he said, I don't need to read this book, he's like, but this is who they're gonna cite, right? And I'd be like, yes. That's exactly who they're citing. And he's like, yeah. And so he began on Twitter to show where it all came from. And I looked back on it and I was like, yeah, that's exactly what this is. This is postmodernism. I understand this. It reminds me of um, – do you remember that scene in Jurassic Park, the original Jurassic Park, where um, the little girl sits down at the computer and she's looking at the computer and she goes, oh, oh I know this. And she starts to, to go through the mainframe and, and turn the power back on so they can escape the island. That's how I felt as soon Hmm. as james popped that up and started showing what it was i was like oh i know this this is postmodernism." they they predicted that this was coming okay and so um and then you can you can see the shift happen in 2009 brian mclaren starts writing about post-colonial theory right Mm -hmm. which is the theory that everything is colonized the white man has colonized everything and then uh, i think it's um oh what's his name mark van Inwick? Oh, his name escapes me just off the top of my head, gave an interview in two thousand eleven where he said the that he was originally drawn to postmodernism because of, of how it talks about uncertainty of truth and how objective truth is not realized. He goes, But but then but then he says how does he put it? he goes, I realized that that I, I also want to have this post colonial conversation where we can talk about power and how truth has been used as a form of power and, and, and it's been used to oppress people and who gets to decide what truth is generally been used as something to, to create and maintain power. And I just looked at that and I said, this is exactly what James said it was going to be. Okay. So they were they were doing it when in between my time between 2006 and 2018 when I was kind of um, not paying attention to the evangelical circles they did exactly what James had said they were going to do. So as soon as he pointed that up, I just said, "Oh, I know exactly what this is. I've okay. seen all of this before."
0: Can we describe the uh, the decadent state of what preceded postmodern takeover? Like, why? What were the conditions for postmodernism? to sweep in and over the course of the last 15 years basically capture every main institution?
1: Well, there's a couple of theories about that. Um, um, One of them is that um, sees um, sees the social justice movement as a failed homardiology a theology so a homardiology is a theology of sin and an understanding of what it means to sin and so some people would say that it's it's when you get rid of all your religion you now need to have a way of understanding what is good what is bad what is sin what is what is evil and something needs to say why things are wrong and social justice comes in and says well it's the doctrine of oppression and it's the doctrine of of power over other people right there's your there's your that's 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 one. Just sitting off the top of my head, I think. Um, I think the pump was primed for postmodernism a long time ago. I think the cake was baked fifteen years ago. In fact, I think it was already showing up. I mean, you have the Colbert Report with Stephen Colbert, which is yeah. a postmodern deconstruction of the of the news opinion shows. You have John Stewart showing up at that time and he's doing a postmodern deconstruction of the news so it's already the cake is baked 15 years ago yeah i think the real question is why did the postmodernism take root to begin with and i think that back in the 60s it was the linguistic turn it was um, when the french philosophers had structuralism which is the view that words are always defined by other words right um, once you accept that if you if you if you grab that fully and say that words are only defined by other words you've now taken language and you and you've taken it off the world one of the goals of language when we describe things is that we want to describe we want to describe the world in such a way that we can demarcate the world along its causal joints that's part of what we're trying to do that's part of our process And the language that we speak is the lexicon of all the conceptual distinctions that people before us thought were worth making. But if you accept structuralism and the words are all just defined by other words, um, you've now separated the language from the world, right? Um, So in the light of uh, the failures of Marxism – I think what happened is there were certain people who said well if marxism failed because they were marxist and they already didn't like capitalism and they didn't see another option they said well the problem is now is that no matter who has power they're going to do bad things with it so what do we have to do we're going to deconstruct everything right Mm -hmm. and I think what dare to realized is that all of the institutions are held together with documents and the spread of information which is all done in language and if you can deconstruct and rip apart the meaning of the documents and the information you can you can uh, throw the gears in the sand of the institutions that are doing all the wars and dropping all the bombs and everything yeah. else okay. the problem is it's so it's like a solvent right but postmodernism, in and of itself is a universal solvent it dissolves absolutely everything right and that's why postmodernism went through what James and Helen in their book call – cynical theories called the high deconstructive phase, right? That's where everything gets deconstructed, including deconstruction itself. They just deconstruct everything in sight and then they can't go anywhere because once you've deconstructed, everything what's left, right? If, if everything is meaningless, you just end up with utter nihilism, right? Because that's what deconstruction does. It it dissolves things at the level of meaning. It, it attacks the meaning of things and creates – um, what Derrida called an aporia which is an irresolvable conflict that can't be moved past so here you are and and you have all these ideas and thoughts that you think mean something and and is going to come along and deconstruct so that you start to see so that people will see internal contradictions and then it sucks the power out of them because now people are like well i'm not sure about that now i'm not sure about science now it looks like there's too many contradictions in science i i can't i can't i can't be sure and it takes the power out of things, right? Um, but so when when that view, when when the when the Derridean deconstructive view gets mixed in with critical theory, that's really potent.
0: So let's uh, pause for a moment and discuss critical theory. Could you give like a primer a primer of that? Sure. Just in the context of what we're speaking about.
1: So critical theory came in in. Um, so why don't i I do it this way so originally the first critical theorist is generally considered to be karl marx and the critical theorist takes a critical eye and a moral worldview and looks out at everything in the world and says why is it not the way that fits my morality why is it not a way that fits my morality why is that the case so Marx was doing this with economics and politics and had an analysis of power that also fit in with this, right? And he was criticizing the politicians, he was criticizing the political system, and he was criticizing the economics for what he saw as the unequal distribution of the material resources, which would allow people to live their lives the way they wanted. That's what, I mean Marx said a lot of things, but that's like the main thing I think that people have taken out of him was his, his economic critique and his political critique. The, the Frankfurt School in the – I would say the – from the late 20s to the early 40s was when it was really kind of forming itself said we're going to take that critique. But instead of just applying it to, to uh, the economics and the, the distribution of resources, we're going to apply that to everything that exists in society, right? That's why people call it – sometimes call it cultural Marxism, which isn't a really a good term, um, mm. It's a society, it's taking Marx's relentless critiquing method and style and applying it not just to uh, the economic and political situation, but to everything, books, art, aesthetics, Mm -hmm. roadways, uh, sports, Christmas, Halloween, everything, right? So the critical theorists do that and you end up with – the 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 kind of countercultural critique of the 60s which says um that everything in culture ultimately supports the powerful who hoard resources right that that was their their line of thinking so do you hear a siren
0: yeah but it doesn't matter um it, I mean, it does matter insofar as there's an emergency happening out there somewhere, <laughs> and, and I right? hope it gets resolved. But my question is, why do you think that equality or fairness is the uh, moral bedrock of critical theory? Because that's what it seems to me. Why, why yeah. that particular moral matrix? Okay. Uh, they do talk about harm and concern as another thing that they are always uh, discussing. But
1: yeah. so, so if you want, if you want to get there, so we'll do it this way. So guy debord from the situationist international comes along and what he says is that every single relationship in society is mediated through capitalism everything it's 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 all there and he goes you're just you just can't escape it every single thing that you do whenever you go on a date you go on a date because that's how you see dates portrayed in movies which are portrayed that way for the sake of capitalism and every time you buy a girl the ring because you want to marry her that's because of all the advertising you've gotten from the diamond companies that are meant to tell you that you need this big expensive ring on her finger so that it's everything but what he said was and this is where the counterculture comes from at least in part the board comes along and says yes but all it takes is just a a little event a small tiny and it can be anything it can be um it can be a book you read it can be a painting you saw it can be something someone says in conversation in passing anything to shake you and make you realize oh it doesn't need to be this way that that capitalism has entrenched itself everywhere and you can see through the illusion then you immediately see that oh i don't really need a diamond ring oh it's all fake it's all wrong right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. his student jean baudrillard took it a step further and what jean baudrillard did in his book simulacrum and situation uh have you, you've seen the everyone's seen the movie the matrix right
0: mm-hmm.
1: the matrix was based on that book and if you actually look in the opening credits of the matrix you see simulacrum and situation in the scene where neo pulls a disc out of a book and baudrillard goes a step further and says it's not because debord said you could get out you just needed to be made aware of it, and anything can do that. It could be a painting. It could be an art piece. It could be a protest. Anything to let you know that capitalism isn't all-encompassing and that there's another way out can wake you up. And what Baudrillard said is no. Baudrillard said you're actually stuck. He goes, the the social situation is everything. It's your thoughts. It's your language. So even even when you, even when the drinking of orange juice, he goes, is, is influenced by society. He goes, that's why – it tastes better when it's free because everything that you experience is influenced by this, by by the society that you're in. And so what he says is that we've taken the world and we've grafted our concepts onto it. And he tells a, a, a Borges fable where they map a society where the map is as big as society and touches the society at every point. So the map, becomes coextensive with the territory and then underneath of the map the 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 real stuff rots away and that's Mm. what he thinks he thinks that everything that we see is just the social interpretation of or or just how we process the information as conditioned socially to do so and so where debord thought the slightest thing could touch you and get you out bojiard said not only are we all stuck in the matrix but he thought if I've read him right, if he was stuck in it too, you might not be able to get out, right? So then you that, that you see the shift, right? So then that's part of it. And then you have Derrida talking about language. Then you have Foucault coming on and saying everything is really about power. It's all just proxies for power. And what Foucault said was every argument that gets had, every discussion that gets had is people jockeying for status, in the conversation the reason you want to win the conversation has nothing to do with the truth you might be true you might not be true that's not what the point is the point is about who has power and who gets to decide the point is not which economic policy is the best economic policy the question is who gets to decide who gets to choose and who benefits so that you take those three elements together you have Baudrillard saying we're trapped in our social our social bubble where our society literally uh, grafts itself into everything we see so we can't help. Even, even in the taste of food or the smell of a rose, it's, we are socially conditioned, have a, have a socially conditioned response and understanding of that. And then you take Derrida saying language can't communicate perfectly and you take Foucault's view of power and the only thing that's left is power relationships. That's it. Yeah. And when that's the thing – but when it comes to power relationships, what possible morality could you have other than either they're equal or they're unequal yeah. is how the power is distributed, right? That's the thing. And if you look at wokist morality, it generally comes down to consent and power or agency and power. That's the only thing that they have in their worldview. It's austere. Except for the fact that if you understand their view, they will tell you that it's the differences in the power who's up here and who's down here. That's the thing that matters. It's the power relationship. That's how they see it. So Baudrillard says, your society has influenced literally everything you say and think and you can't get out of it. You're not capable of seeing through it. Almost never. Well, the wokest haven't. Quite grasp that, but they've come really close. That's where the term "woke" comes from. You have to, you have to wake up, like in the Matrix, right? You can't see through it, but other people can help wake you up, right? And then you add dare to saying, look, you can't communicate perfectly, so there's no objectivity because even if, even if you were to find some objective truth, you could never communicate it perfectly anyway. So. Even if someone could get an objectively true fact, they could never communicate it in a way that was interpreted perfectly. So there are no objective truths because everything that you say can be reinterpreted differently and you could never communicate the truth anyway. So all you would have is your own experience, right? That's it. And then you have Foucault coming and talking about power and all of a sudden the only thing that exists is the social world and the way that it is mediated is through power. So, if you want to talk about morality, you have to talk about society and you have to talk about power. So, social power is the only thing you can talk about. That's it, that's your world.
0: The In the movie The Matrix, the answer that they seem to give, from my point of view, is the if you watch the hero, Neo, uh, go through his process of becoming awoke, woke, uh, at the very end, he flies off the screen. He becomes representationally all-powerful. All right? And what I've seen, what I've witnessed in my research into the social effects of this ideology working out in little communities here and there, in different sizes, is that... People start to jockey for power, but there can only be one all-powerful being. So it, it becomes uh, very difficult to see it as cohesive at all. It seems like it's utterly fragmentary uh, it, once you let it play out. People start to get on top, but the, whoever's on top needs to be deconstructed in turn.
1: Yeah, they, so they're, they're very, very concerned. When all you think about is who has power anytime someone gets power well not someone because they will tend to see people who are in perfect agreement as avatars for themselves hmm. because they divide people into groups so if the guy at the top of the power structure is exactly like me that would be they tend not to fight that so hard right like i'm sure that um intersectional feminists would have no problem with the kimberly crenshaw presidency right okay. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that the the radical trans activists would have absolutely no problem with uh, um, a Charlotte Climber presidency, um, or you know, like they they would accept fully um, a, a presidency from someone who shares their worldview, right? So, um, what I would say about that is that one of the things that Bo- one of Baudrillard's criticisms of the Matrix was that he said that the matrix pictured the world which is the real world and the matrix is being utterly separate entities and dare said no they're together they're, they're crashed into one another and the one is rotting away in favor of the other and so there's a scene in the movie and i can't remember if it's in the third one of the or which one it's in where neo is out of the matrix and one of the robots comes at him and he goes like this and he pushes and in the real world it stops That's the fulfillment of Baudrillard's view, where the two things come together, where the reality can be manipulated by the matrix. And I think that's where they're at. They think that that the very distinction of the separation between the real and the social is itself a social construct that can be deconstructed and that we can – that reality is such that we can graft onto it whatever social understanding we want, literally anything. The, it's it's And because it can be literally anything, I can socially construct myself as literally anything. I have limitless potential.
0: Except right? for if you wanted to be a black woman. You couldn't go there. You could be a woman, but not a black woman. Right? Oh,
1: yeah. So that has to do with how identity is theorized, right? So um, the way that they understand that is um, – uh, so, so take a step back. The point about I can construct myself to be anything I want, there is no social – Um, there's no social constraints when you get to the end of the road now currently Hmm. you're right i can't cross the racial boundary well why is that well that's because in in their view the way that they understand the world is that um um there's a there's a little bit of hide the ball going on but there's there's two different Views underneath that you can kind of establish. The view from the radical activists in queer theory, which is, I, I guess you could call it the LGBTQ wing of postmodern wokeism, um, mm-hmm. they see identity as absolutely, utterly, utterly socially constructed. They say, well, you, you divide people based on genitals. Okay, well, why not hair color? Why not eyebrow width? Right? You can pick anything, fingernail length um how many hairs they have on their left hand right like you can pick anything why not they they and and you point out well we are a reproductive species you know we, we do need to keep this be spe- that's utterly irrelevant to them you could view us as a reproductive species or you could view us as a species that 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 produces shoes and that's mm-hmm. well, we do produce shoes okay well that's the main thing relevant to who right who's to say that our being a reproductive species is more relevant than us being a species that plays basketball who decides that and who benefits that's how they think about the world right so what they would say is so to the radical queer theorist we can socially construct anything any way we want so male and female these are just these are purely social terms it makes no more sense to talk about a biological female than it does to talk about a biological male man or biological lawyer to them these are all just designators of where you fit into your society right Mm -hmm. in their view gender is constructed as an oppressive social construct created by patriarchy in order to perpetuate white supremacy and patriarchy they have a different view of racial identity Gender identities are all created by the patriarchy. It is our job then to co opt, subvert them, right? I want to co opt. You put a gender identity on me. I'm now going to co opt it and subvert it. That's the goal there. Mm-hmm. With race, they would say that something like being Hispanic, Hispanic identity, and Jewish identity, and black identity would all be identities constructed by those, by the groups racialized as black or racialized as hispanic or racialized as jewish all of those identities are created as a response to oppression right and so those identities are created out of the in the undeconstructable internal experience of oppression that those people feel so the gender identity comes from the top from the patriarchy it has come down to to oppress and is therefore to be deconstructed the racial categories of brown and pOC and black and jew are created in response to the um, the the racist society oppressing. And so these identities down here, these these racial identities, these racial categories are, And the identities that attend to them are constructed as a defensive mechanism. So you don't destruct, you don't deconstruct the defensive mechanism and the culture created by oppressed people to defend themselves from white patriarchy and white supremacy. You deconstruct the white supremacy.
0: But if you. If they were to flush the whiteness from themselves, and that's from a Twitter thread that I uh, read uh, about mm. this woman who's talking about how white people will never understand and never sacrifice their children for our liberation. They don't really understand our violence. And and part of that violence, uh, they don't understand it because they only have a European way of, of even conceiving of liberation and violence. But we need to take yeah. the whiteness from us. Is there anything left if you get rid of whiteness? If everything's a binary and you destroy the one is it just a zero left
1: oh that's a good question um i think what they would say is they would say we've adopted a white identity so the white identity the whiteness quote unquote whatever that is needs to be destroyed and then something else can be replaced that something else can be built to replace it and i think that the identity that replaces it is a woke identity we're going to steal your white identity, which is white patriarchy, capitalism, science, objectivity, and we're going to replace it over here with this thing over here, which is the this nice woke identity.
0: Hmm. Is the does the woke identity have a personality? Does oh, that's a, a great
1: question. That's a great question. Um, it's endlessly deferential. Um. passive-aggressive in my view um or actually no i i want to i want to rethink that i don't know that there's a woke personality i think that there's a woke ideology and that that ideology when accepted by different people works itself out in different ways but um it it always works it regardless of who it gets a hold of it does tend to ratchet people in a certain direction uh towards uh um a more and more critical mindset, a more and more cynical mindset, a more and more pessimistic mindset. Um, and it becomes, there's a, there's a nihilism that's, a hen, that's attended to the heart of woke ideology because uh, at the end of the day, everything is just socially constructed anyway, right? It's all just social constructs. And so if you ever get a fully, meaning comes to them from trying to set society right, well, if society ever got set right, what would they do? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, so, so it doesn't – I don't know that it has an inherent meaning outside of, of deconstructing and attacking power structures. I'm not sure, um, but I, I do know that there is, there is a, a woke identity and a woke ideology that revolves around being the kind of person who disrupts, deconstructs, and dismantles yeah. uh, systems which they consider to be uh, power structures that are oppressive.
0: I can see how somebody like Ibram Kendi would out in the open say that he wants to basically annul the U.S. Constitution by appending yep. to it a uh, office of uh, anti-racism, which has yep. power over every other department, every policy, every elected official. It seems to be the case that given infinite power, they would lose control in the same way that Stalin did, and just start to destroy people for the sake of continually exerting power, or just negate individuals uh, who don't align up in whatever degree, in order to just continually go about exerting that power.
1: Yeah, so Paulo Freire said, Paulo Freire was a Brazilian neo Marxist. um, And his work was eventually picked up and I believe it was in an essay in 1993. Might have been before that though. I can't remember the exact timeline off the top of my head. But in what was it ninety two? Might have been actually might have been ninety one. He uh he, um Henry Drew wrote a, wrote a um a paper called Postcolonialism and the Politics of Palo Frieri. I'm oh, sorry, Palo Frieri and the Politics of Postcolonialism. And what he said in that paper is that um Palafrey did a good analysis, but that we needed to mix in a bunch of other things as well. And the things that we needed to mix in have to do with how we talk about power, how we bring power in from one context into another, how we make people aware of the social situation. He mixes the postmodernism in and he brings the postmodernism into the situation, right? That's what that's what he's doing. And what frieri said um is that the revolution must be continuous. The revolution must never stop and the reason that the revolution must never stop is because once the revolution stops it becomes the status quo and once it becomes the status quo it becomes the hegemony it becomes the power structure that it ceased to deconstruct right and so that level of thinking is why an 80 year old fidel castro with millionaire daughters walks around in army fatigues in cuba right because the revolution must be continuous even though he's been in power for 40 years he's given tremendous wealth to his family while people mm-hmm. starve but he's wearing his army fatigues because the revolution never stops, baby. Right? Okay. Th- that's so they're thinking.
0: In a way, it, it will stabilize. It will just be hidden. There will be a status quo eventually with the right people in power. But it will eventually stop being a revolution because it, a revolution can't. It, it will exhaust what it is revolutionizing.
1: There, there are two options for it. It will either. It will either ossify into pure totalitarianism of the type that we saw in the soviet union or it will rip itself to pieces those are the only two options um because that's postmodernism is inherently unstable it deconstructs everything Mm -hmm. so either it will ossify around a certain set of axioms and deconstruction will no longer be allowed yeah they will consider they will they will say they will say, well, you can't deconstruct the experience of the people that created these laws. So the laws are fruit of the undeconstructible experience and therefore can't be deconstructed. Um, or it'll just be ad hoc. Right. It'll just be we have enough power to enforce our view. We're just going to enforce it in the name of empathy and in the name of fairness and in the name of our ideology. That's one thing that they can do. And the other thing is that they'll rip each other to pieces.
0: Is there a way to push him towards the ladder? (laughs) To be cynical in my turn. Oh, um, If if we are to allay the ascendancy uh, or the capitulation of our government to the woke, how would we stop that from happening? And what point are we at right now? What are our our options?
1: um, The thing that I've tried to do is I think that we teach our way out of it. Once people understand what's going on, um, they'll reject it, right? Once people see and understand, and and I get this all the time on Twitter. There's a there's a very loud vocal group of people on the on the political right who say things like, "Well, we need to just you need to just meet the woke with power." And I'm just like, if you had that power, you'd have done that already. So you don't have that power. So what are you going to do? Well, we got to keep our heads down and then you know, wait till we have the time to strike. Uh, the longer you keep your head down the deeper they're going to dig the more entrenched they become what are you going to do you have to have a plan and people say well it's hopeless they control all the everything and I kind of look around and I say they actually don't they control the means of cultural production in a lot of areas music movies television art yeah they they control a lot of cultural production that is absolutely true They they definitely do but that doesn't prevent us from teaching people out, and then people can start to begin to push back on that, right? Remember, we still do live in a nominally or at least a, a, for in large part a capitalist society. And what that means is if Marvel decides to preach wokeness and postmodernism, I don't got to spend my eight bucks to go down and see what happened to Captain America, right? I don't, I don't have to do that. you're going to preach wokeness i'm permitted to pull back from that and we also live in a society where right now you and i can still do this yeah you know and so when people see it for what it is when they get clarity when the intellectual it's like a magic trick when the intellectual slight when the sleight of hand of a magic trick works if i'm doing a card trick and you can see where i hid the card up my sleeve the trick doesn't work it doesn't amaze you you see it for what it is the same is true with wokeness if you can get people to see the the intellectual slice of hand that are occurring um it stops working they stop they stop facing it and at that point it's just a matter of social pressure but if you can get enough people to stand up the social pressure cancels out it doesn't take much it doesn't take a lot the difference is that um You know, if you read the story of the people, the neo-Marxists and the various people like Kimberly Shaw and Angela Davis and all those people, the length that they are willing to go and what they're willing to sacrifice and what they're willing to give up and how they're willing to suffer to see wokeness go through is pretty incredible. Okay. They are willing to go in and dig in for 20 years to try and get a union in a In a meat shop they are willing to to spend 35 years in a particular city trying to win a single council seat so they can push a a thing through like this is the kind of stuff that they are willing to do and we have a group of people that's like i just want to watch football and it's like you know i mean you guys say you want to want to have a society and you i would die for my country okay well would you be laughed at by your neighbor Are you willing to stick your neck out? Well, I might lose my job. I might lose mine. I might become unemployable after this interview. Who knows? But (laughs) at some some point, we have to be able to risk something to get something. We have to.
0: That leads to the question, what is the appropriate... um, What do we install in the place of the wokeness? Do we revert back to pre-modern times? Do we retreat back to classical liberalism
1: there's no going to erect
0: a god okay no so we go- are we the are thrown. only
1: way so there's two things that are 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 uh are are bad one is that conservatives and liberal moderates should not adopt postmodernism and the postmodern view that is a massive mistake secondly going back to pre-modern world views is also an enormous and gigantic mistake um People talk about, well, we need the dark enlightenment and neo-reactionaryism and Mencius Moebuck. No, that is also a gigantic mistake. That is not the way to go through. Wow. The only The only way – that's not the way to do it because those things all either accept the postmodern premise about truth or they step back from the liberal – uh, ideas about objectivity premodernism pulls back from objectivity by by undoing science, right? It's taking a step back from from that and you don't want to do that It also takes a step back away from individual rights um, and 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 you don't want to accept that and you also don't want to accept the postmodernism because once you do that You've deconstructed the world, right? You don't want an infinitely malleable world because the world isn't infinitely malleable You want to be able to know it so you don't. You can't step back from postmodernism and go back to what it was, and you don't want to accept it. So the only way out is through. Okay, we have to go through the postmodern era and defeat it. It has to be fought off, and it has to be won, and we have to have a decisive victory. There was the science wars in the mid '90s. Uh, Alan Sokol did his Sokol hooks at the time, and and they won, but they they didn't they didn't erect New guard Wales to protect these to prevent these concepts from getting through but rather they allowed the concepts to continue to perpetuate themselves within the university and to continue to teach and to continue to share themselves unchallenged the problem is not a free speech problem the problem is that the ideas were not challenged from the outside and so once those ideas took hold and those ideas are illiberal and are not open to being challenged because in the postmodern mindset the very act of challenging them is itself an act of injustice and bigotry right the very idea that you would say that wokeness is wrong would be seen as um to uh um would be seen as an immoral act it would be seen as a power grab to demand evidence from somebody is is to say that there is an objective truth in the world and that's to, to devalue the experience of an oppressed person so you can't do that, right? So you, 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 can't, you can't accept any of that, and that was allowed to go on in the universities, right? This time when we beat it, we have to beat it and drive it into the ground so that everyone understands why this is wrong. And I think we teach our way out of it. I think we, it, the way out is to know and to understand so that people can see that yes – There are scientific propositions, and then there are the way that scientific propositions are put to use. But we don't look at the way that science is used and then use that as an excuse to try and attack the truth value of the claims. No, the claims, we use science as a methodology to create the objective truth claims of science, and then we use ethics – as a way to determine what should we do now that we're living in now given the knowledge that we have what should we do with it what's the appropriate way to act and behave we have to go through the postmodern era but we don't go through it by adopting by adopting it we don't go through it by grabbing pre-modernism that's a step back that's trying to undo what's been done and it can't be undone it has to be gone through right it's like if i catch pneumonia you don't undo the pneumonia you have to battle it off you have to have your immune system fight it off you have to take the antibiotics okay. that's what needs to happen here we need to have an a societal immunal response and we have to teach our way out of it we have to go through it in that respect but um trying to go back to the pre-modern age or trying to accept post-modernism on conservative terms or the, or as some sort of cynical dark enlightenment is not going to work That stuff. That stuff is is destined to fail. The way out is to go through. But we have to go through keeping the liberal program intact, but with a new immunal system that says that that understands where postmodernism got its thin end of its wedge in, and have an answer that deals with that on the terms that preserve truth and objectivity.
0: So we are doing. We're fighting in the name of truth and objectivity. Is that the uh, is that the banner?
1: I think it's one of the banners. I think that the first banner is truth and objectivity. Uh, I think that the second banner that we want to do is have a profound respect for the individual uh, and have a profound respect for individual rights. I think we want to have a defense of democracy and and the consent of the governed. Um, I think we want to defend the nation state as, as a proper way of governing. I think that we want to um, defend you know freedom of speech and freedom of association th- those are the are the things that i think that we we want to i mean i'm painting in broad strokes and i'm leaving out yeah. so much yeah. but but i mean th- that's the banner the banner is a is a type of liberalism i mean it will change because we'll have to take into account the postmodern critique right and we have to have a response to that but i don't think that accepting that the postmodern definitions of truth and saying well you know they had a point about this mm, Mm, no, no. They 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 found a place to put the thin end of their wedge, and we need to be able to offer a good response as to why that isn't true, and it... and to defend the ability of humans to know objective truth.
0: Okay. Is there, in your mind, uh, being a theologian at one point in your life, if not currently, uh, is in your mind, is there a theological uh, backdrop, some sort of mythological framework, uh, some sort of positive religion or community of religions uh, that can guide people or nourish people as storytelling creatures in their pursuit of uh, truth and objectivity? Because truth and objectivity, I'm sorry to say, aren't as sexy as we would like them to be.
1: From the from the Christian perspective, this wonderful book here, I'm um, telling the truth as gospel as tragedy, comedy and fairy tale by Frederick Beckner, um is is good, I think. You know, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. He he both of those books are are instructive in that they understand that that human beings need a story to be able to tell. I mean, it's not it's not enough to have a, a story okay and it's not enough to say well we want truth and objectivity you have to have truth and objectivity and create room for myth and story you have to have both because if you don't have your truth and objectivity you're rudderless and if you're if you don't have story then you then you've lost your reason your raison d'etre your reason for being so you got to have both of those things right um, postmodernism decouples us from the truth and then tells a story about the powerful and the the those people oppressing everyone else. So they've got elements there that allow them to create this this highly a deconstructive quasi well actually James has been the case that it is a religion, so I'll say this 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 religion of dismantling, deconstruction and, and societal remaking and reordering. We need to put forth a doctrine of truth that can function alongside a series of stories that allow us to, to put forward a better way of being.
0: Okay. Is there such a thing as something that uh, the postmodernist cannot deconstruct?
1: Oh, And if not, uh, yes. then how
0: do you protect that which is sacred from that influence? Um,
1: well, first off, when deconstruction rests on some theories about language, which are absolute nonsense. So you have to you have to to show people the trick that's being played with deconstruction, uh, actually. Since since I'm just showing off books now, <laughs> we have some... Yeah,
0: I, I apologize to my podcast listeners.
1: <laughs> Sorry, uh, cynical theories by James Lindsay, and um, is is super important because um, mm. that will show you exactly what they deconstruct and why and and it does a lot of good work to trace how that works i would say that um when people see how what deconstruction is and how it's just it it decouples meaning from the thoughts of people it fails so real real quick i think this might be a good time to do this um one dare to said a few things about deconstruction um one of the things that he said is that you can derive meaning from absence so if if there's a wedding and the groom doesn't show up, we can infer some things. Maybe there was an accident, maybe there was an emergency, you know, something's gone on, right? Um, If, if you're, if, uh, if there's a meeting at work and one employee is conspicuously absent, that might tell us something, right? Um, So he talks about things being the absence and presence of a thing telling us something. Um, But if, if, for example, if, if i get married and there's no Trianosaurus rex at my wedding that shouldn't tell us something i mean why would there be a triannosaurus rex at my wedding right like that doesn't make any sense but but there are times when something's absence and presence um can mean or not mean things so that was the first thing that he said then he said that all language is deferred words are only ever defined by other words that's it that's mm-hmm. all and then the last thing he said is that the author doesn't determine what something means right so think of a postcard suppose you find a postcard lying on the ground and you don't know who it's from you don't know who it's to but you read it and you understand it Derrida says see you don't need to know the author or who the author is and Derrida's answer is that we make meaning in our own heads so if i make the meaning in my own head and i decide what things mean and the words are used entire defined entirely of themselves and they're not necessarily connected to the world in any other way other than how i connect them in my own mind and i can read into things based upon what's there and what's not by whatever my expectations are so you didn't include my book in your collection of books well that must be because you hate people with glasses because i can infer from the absence of my book meaning Hmm. once you take all those three things together language doesn't grab onto anything it's just anything can mean whatever it wants as soon as you point out to people that how can I put this as soon as people understand that that completely disconnects meaning of language from what they've said they reject it Hmm. I mean how many times have you said what I meant to say was well if you take dare to seriously what I meant to say was doesn't matter who cares what you meant to say impact not intent right yeah Yeah. that's what they teach right so once once you get down to it once you dig through and rummage through their their view and people really see what's going on when they really see that deconstruction means that you can't actually communicate what's in your head to somebody else at all ever with any kind of reliability at all and that anyone can take anything that you say and reinterpret it however they want once that happens people start rejecting it very quickly once you point out that you know what can be deconstructed is art and we can we can recontextualize it yeah we can take one clip of one movie clock clock clock, clip it out and then take another clip from another movie and put them together to come up in the new a movie and people say great and then i say okay let's do that with cancer research take half of one paper half of another paper and then we'll mix them together and have the doctor treat you and then go no i don't want that
0: Hmm.
1: well in the world of deconstruction something that works in art doesn't necessarily work in science Uh, once people see that they begin to say that the playing of meaning and the recontextualizing of things to say something new is something that ought to be restricted to art you you once they get clear about what this stuff actually does i think most people will reject it once they get a clear understanding
0: So one of the uh, advancing, one one of the fronts of this, uh, and I I need help. Uh, Hopefully I can articulate in such a way you can help me uh, figure this out. But what's happening right now in the wake of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests, which are still ongoing. So you have the protests themselves, which are kind of interesting in and of themselves. But on the adult level is... uh, connected to that, but on the adult level are all these trainings and all these quotas and all this, uh, these other ideas about affirmative action, about representation from Hollywood Oscars to you know, the makeup of your, uh, your, your doctors who, who treats you. Like there's, yeah. there's all these fronts to create equity, to create equality, and then there's all this training uh, going into effect, which in some way kind of hobbles you from defending yourself or arguing against the uh, front of that. Um... One thing that we haven't really touched upon in all of the theory is that activist wing, is that evangelical aspect of uh, the critical theory, postmodern wokeness, right? Where yeah. it does have meaning, it absolutely does have meaning. You can't That's say right. that they're using Derrida when they say we want X number of women in power, we want X number of shades represented in these things, yeah. right? So they do have the cultural capital and yes. the specific yeah. uh, the specificity and the objective need or want or demand that they want. Yeah. So there is reality to it
1: at this yeah. point. So um what happened there is they, they took a step back from the pure postmodernism. So what I'm talking about when I talk about the deconstruction, I say this is at the heart of their view, but they took a step back. And the step back that they took is that they said that you can't understand the feeling of oppression. You can't deconstruct that. Yeah. See so you're you're a white person. You can't understand what it's like to be oppressed. You can never deconstruct from your white space the feeling of oppression. It's it's presented to you in its in its completeness. You you can't get rid of it. The the things that are deconstructed are things that are social and um, that are social and linguistic. And they would say the experience may be caused by society and language, but the experience itself is like the experience of pain. You can deconstruct the the social implications of pain but when your leg hurts you can't make that feeling not go away by deconstructing it they would say that because that's an internally experienced uh, thing right so they would say that you can't deconstruct that and that's where it stops but if they ever create a society in which there are no oppressed people guess what that feeling of oppression is gone and guess what now there's nothing left that can't be deconstructed. Okay. Right? Well, how
0: would they how would they maintain that oppression then?
1: I don't think they would. If they if 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 all the oppression went away, yeah. I, I, on their view, if you ever got them to agree that all the oppression is gone, the only thing that they have that that can't be deconstructed is the internal experience of is their own internal experiences, right? Of oppression. Mm. Well. If that can't if that's gone now, if those things now can be deconstructed, then everything is left. I suppose they might say, well, hold on, there are certain forms of identity that can't be deconstructed, because the experience of even if I'm not oppressed, the experience of of what it's like to be a black person or a Hispanic person or a white person, because remember, there's no oppression now, so whites can count again. Um, mm-hmm. they, they might they might hold that around. they might they might keep that on they could try so that they've got something that's objective or that's something that's not i wouldn't say objective that's something that they can hang their hat on they've got to have a linchpin somewhere but but at the end of the day the 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 thing that they have and, and this is what kimberly crenshaw says is that that in her article intersectionality i can't remember when it was written i want to say 89 um she says that that intersectionality is the bridge between postmodern theory and progressive thought and and the way that it bridges that is by saying um We can bring postmodernism in because we now have something that can't be deconstructed, something that we can use that allows us to use postmodernism without driving ourselves into absolute nihilism. That thing is our identity and the experience of oppression.
0: So how do you decouple the... uh... The moral imperative to help your fellow man to lift up the marginalized, to do all those progressive things. How do you decouple that or preserve it from the taint of critical theory and uh, critical race theory? uh, Where you still say, yeah, listen, we're doing all the work to lift everybody up, but we're we're doing it in a better way that actually stabilizes them rather than uh, indoctrinates them.
1: Everything postmodernism does, liberalism does better. Okay. Everything. Except for something,
0: because if postmodernism is a worse form of liberalism, why is it? Why did it catch on? Right? Because it's more radical or it bills itself as better than liberalism?
1: Um, it attacks a liberal weak point and a liberal vulnerability. That's what it does. It exploits that. Um, okay. It's not it's not better than liberalism. It's exploited a vulnerability and it exploited a vulnerability at a time see one of the virtues of liberalism is that allows discussion and so the postmodern wokies used the liberalism willingness to have discussion to keep their ideas going in and flourishing and to work their way through institutions and and now it's very much a case of um we will exercise our free speech we will exercise our free speech according to your views when you are in power we will take away your free speech according to our views while we are in power. That's the view of the postmodern. That's that's a little bit what they're doing, and they exploited that. Mm-hmm. Um, they also exploited a, a weakness in liberalism in that um, a lot of liberals had become complacent with their liberalism. Yeah. We'd ceased to defend it. It was just so obvious that it was – I mean everyone watched the communist regimes all over the world fail and fail yeah. horribly in every single way. And so we got complacent. Why defend it? And they didn't didn't see the threat that was coming right under their doorstep. Right? They had no idea until until the what Graham she called the long march through the institution started to bear fruit. Yeah. And they didn't realize. But by the time they'd seen it, the fruit. By the time the fruit shows up, the roots are deep. Oh yeah.
0: yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's where we are right now.
1: Yeah. Uh, to go back to something, you know what else had really deep roots is the 60s counterculture. This book here, uh, The Rebel Cell by Joseph Heath and Andrew Potter, hmm. um, gave a um, an account of the, the culture jamming movement. Remember I, earlier I talked about Debord and how Debord was different from Baudrillard because Baudrillard said we were stuck in a matrix and couldn't see our way out because every single thing and every single object of society was perceived to us in a way that was – conditioned by our society such that we can't see our way out of it we can only perceive the objects and only see them in the way that our society has conditioned us to see them there's no new ways of thinking it's all controlled the board didn't quite think that the board thought you could that it was just the relations between things were governed economically but that they didn't have to be that way and that they could easily not be that way and that the slightest artistic performance or um or some fashion or a new way of of dressing could could people go oh it doesn't need to be that way so for example um you might have someone everyone shows up in a suit one day and then one guy shows up to work and doesn't wear a tie everyone goes why aren't you wearing a tie and he says why would i wear a tie and ties ties are unnecessary people go oh and now we have a, an opportunity for a conversation and he says well the only reason that people want us to buy ties is to support capitalism and all of a sudden people go oh hey wait a second why do i need to wear this suit what 's the point of this suit what's the purpose? We could easily wear jeans and t shirts. Why do we need to wear a suit and you could get yourself out right hmm. that That view led to the culture jamming worldview, which said that that um you know any any little thing that you do can can hint can give a prefigurative action towards uh a new society. This is why the hippies would dress differently and act differently and do graffiti on things and stuff because they thought that if they just could embed little messages in the culture they could trip people and wake them up to oh it doesn't need to be this way right yeah
0: yeah
1: yeah. um that was the countercultural hippie movement that's that's from this book um a lot of the countercultural hippies did things like wear dreadlocks um, adopt eastern religions Right? They would bring in foreign cultures because they thought, look, if I can just bring in something from a foreign culture and have people see it as equal, all of a sudden they'll wake up and see that their capitalist culture isn't everything. right? Well, we'd call that cultural appropriation now. right? This yeah. view was the dominant view in arts and cultural production for the 40 years before postmodernism showed up and it's dead. There's not a single culture jammer around. Hmm. You never hear that. When was the last time you heard about conformity and consumerism? Right, that's gone. Well, it's all
0: conformist now,
1: right? Yeah, the the idea of not being a conformist, of conformity being bad, of homogeneity being bad, that's gone. Hmm. Particularly Whoa. intellectual, like intellectual homogeneity is now praised. I mean, they've redefined diversity so that it doesn't include intellectual homogeneity. And the point is, this worldview was dominant in cultural production for probably thirty. I mean, that's why the Beatles sung Revolution, right? Yeah, you don't have yeah. to change the institutions or the constitutions you have to free your mind man right yeah, and freeing yeah. your mind was the point right drugs could free your mind because it would allow you to think differently that's why the man sends the fuzz around to bust your stash man right
0: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. that was dominated it's gone now the same thing can happen with postmodernism. it's dominant right now it can be gone a lot faster because of its deconstructive properties and the fact that it's a lot less stable right and it can go this stuff here was also attached to the activist wing that the postmodernism is now attached to, right? Postmodernism and critical theory. This was heavily influenced by critical theory prior to postmodernism, right? Mm-hmm. Um Debord wasn't a postmodern, right? His student was but he wasn't. And so I would argue or I would su- suggest at the very least that um um the the protest movement rooted in the organizing principles like oh I wish I had all my books with me um on that you want to read books like um I mean people talk about rules for radicals by Saul Alinsky but mm-hmm. but I don't I don't think that that's um um I don't think that that's one that's that is used at all now or or ever um in activist literature now like that was from the 60s already so let me just pull something up here um um, so i would say something like a jane f my book nor shortcuts organizing for power in the new gilded age is is a, a big important book um um a uh, beautiful trouble, uh, by Dave Oswald Mitchell, um, is another one. Um, that's, that's super important. Um, I had a thread on this of, of other books. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head.
0: What, what's um, the, uh, the governing principle of that, of these then?
1: Um, these books are all about how to organize and create, you create bases of power, right? So that's, that's their, their kind of, Thing. So what you do is you, you find the work – it comes out of the idea that we're going to organize the workers and organize the proletariat to fight back against, against, the, uh, um, against the bourgeoisie, right? That's the Marxist idea, right? So there's an organizing thing that goes all the way back to that. So if you think of like um, Eugene Debs, the, the, the great union organizer in, in, in the early part of the – I think it was the 20th century. Those kinds of people were organizing, right? Organizing the workers, right? That's that's what we want to do. And why do we want to organize the workers? Well, the reason that we want to organize the workers is because um, uh, um, th- that creates us our base of power for us to strike back and to fight back. That's what we're after, right? So, any social collective of any kind, knitting clubs. There's a guy who organized people who ride the bus. Is another one. Um, uh unions are another example and what you want to do is you want to get those people together and you want to organize them you want to bring them together and you want to organize them so that they can fight back and you want to organize them into various um entities in which you can from which you can launch attacks so when there's a problem in the community and you organize the purpose of organization is twofold the first purpose of the organization is to fight back, but the second is you want to use the problem not just as a way of solving the problem. You want to use the problem as a way of building investment in the structure that's created to solve the problem. So we want to, if we're organizing, let's say we the city wants to you know tear down our school and we want to stop them, and we're going to organize a citizens group. What what the lefties realize. Um, The hard left realizes that the goal here is twofold. One is to prevent the school from being built down. But the second is to create a base of power from which we can um, exercise – to build a base of power from which we can continue to teach and train people in the ideology that we want them to learn. Mm -hmm. So Joe Lefty shows up. And says we need to stop the school from being torn down. We're going to organize, and we're going to have a petition drive, and we're going to have a voting drive, and we're going to do it. And while he's doing that, he's now training new activists, and those activists are learning from what he does. Um, those sites of activism, if you ever if you ever get a chance, you can watch the videos of like the WTO riots. In 2003, in, in Toronto, or the Battle for Seattle in 1999, you see all these different activist groups coming together. And when they do stuff like that, or Occupy Wall Street's another one, lifelong, lifetime organizers showing up, understanding how infrastructure works, understanding how the logistics of things work, understanding that there needs to be food, and there needs to be money, and there needs to be protection, and there needs to be leadership, and there needs to be something to organize to keep people there, that there needs to be motivation. Um, That eventually a list of demands need to be that you need to be able to maintain a group of people who all are are very all over the place um um that was a bet that was people who are all very all over the place you need to have a disparate group of people who are willing to tolerate each other who might not even like each other or agree but who all want to be occupying wall street and you have to get them turned on a certain group you have to create street art Right, You have to use all these different tactics. They know how to do that. and They've been doing it. Um, but they were doing it before using this, which is the rebel cell, using that ideology. They switched to the postmodern ideology, right? And so hmm. activism in these movements on the left is a huge part of what keeps the movement together because it allows them to act. It allows them to go out in the world and do. They're not just sitting around theorizing. Yeah. They could theorize them all day, but then the activism allows them to see themselves as change makers and then really um, um, motivate them to do new things. There was a thread recently on Twitter where this woman who was pointed out all the Black Lives Matter stuff and all, all the language being used and all the signs saying, well, don't say theory doesn't have, have impact the world, right? The activism is the mechanism through which the theories meet the world. And whether or not they are successful dictates whether or not a theory gets taken in or whether a theory gets put asunder, which is part of the reason why when people say, well, the postmodern neo-Marxists can't get postmodern and neo-Marxism together, right? That's wrong because they take what they want from – they take what's – the activists take what's effective from neo-Marxism and they take what's effective from postmodernism and they mix them together.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah. It's purely uh in in a sense it's purely Darwinian and like the only thing that matters is what is effective
1: that's right they're not building a machine they're they're cooking hm. I'm, I'm an activist, and I'm I'm in the theoretical and activist kitchen. I'm gonna add a little postmodernism here, and a little neo-Marxism there, and I'm gonna bring in a little bit of the sociology here, and a little bit of gender studies there, and I'm gonna add yeah. in some activism here, and then we're gonna bring in a theory there, and then we're mixing it all together, right? There, it's not, it's it's not, and whatever sticks, whatever gets eaten is what gets reproduced, right? Whatever the people like, they add more of. So it is, in a sense, Darwinian in in that regard, which is why, I mean, conservatives think they can just go to a protest and show up. And and run ring like, people are, you see the conservatives complaining like, well, they've got all of these bail funds for a million bucks. And it's like, yeah, they've been building those for 30 years. They're going to get bailed out, and you're not. Why do you think that is? It's because for 30 years they've been organizing this stuff, right? The postmodernism um, has only come to the forefront in the last 10 or 15 years, but the postmodernism does what it does with everything else. It just takes over, right? So the mm-hmm. underlying structure, which was created by the culture jammers and created by the the union activists in the early part of the 19th and 20th century, that has now been inhabited by the postmodern woke ideology. But for 30 years it was being built. Right? Yeah. For yeah, 30 years yeah. they, were, they were doing that. That's, that, was their, that was their worldview and their ideology yeah. that was driving them to create those outside structures because they didn't like capitalism to begin with. Yeah. And so for that reason they've been doing it for all of these years. So, so um, I always tell conservatives, you don't have that kind of structure. So you'll have to fight back differently. And that's why I always tell them that they need the, the, the moderate liberals as well. They, the Conservatives think they can go this alone. They absolutely can't.
0: Hmm. And you, you know, watch. that reminds me of uh, kind of what happened in the Bush era, when basically Dick Cheney was in charge of a significant amount of what was going on in the Bush government. But that was only the case because he'd been working on that for, you know, 20, 30 years since Nixon. He had been putting all these things in place to be able to do that stuff. So once it went, uh, you know once it emerged into the Iraq war, there was no sort of protest that was going to stop that machine. It it was already... Uh, yeah. In place, so we kind of have to think if we want to fight this. We have to understand think think in terms of the long arc and coalition building, um, which brings me to the question: What do you think is going to happen going forward with all the protests going on, with the lockdown, with the uh, upcoming presidential election? Will things, uh, you know, the, the the tension on the on the streets just keep on uh, percolating and percolating and percolating? Um, or will it reach some sort of uh, peak and subside when the rains come?
1: Wokeness will push itself as hard and as fast and as long as it can. That's what wokeness does. It it, it just goes. And it will continue to do so regardless. Um, part of the, the woke worldview is that there is that any, uh, to moderate, I'm going to put this, The doctrine of complicity and wokeness says that if you go along with something that's not woke, you are complicit in that non-wokeness. So, for example, if there's a racist person and you don't challenge that racist person and you allow that racist person to keep being racist, you are, according to wokeness, complicit in that racism. Mm -hmm. And, of course, anything that's not woke is racist. So, in order to avoid being complicit in racism, you have to dismantle, deconstruct and and uh, disrupt every power structure system that is not woke. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, we or, see that happening constantly.
1: yeah put that to put that another way, if it ain't woke, it's broke and it needs to be fixed by wokeness immediately, which means that they can't compromise. Because to compromise would be to allow not-wokeness to continue. And they don't want to allow not-wokeness to continue. Right? Non-wokeness must be stopped at all costs every single time.
0: So do you think that, let's say, just... Hypothetically, would the what do you see um, the effects of a Biden or a second-term Trump on the progress of wokeness? Do you think it'll escalate, de-escalate, I, or what do you think? I think happen?
1: the woke. I think the wokeness is going to push regardless of who wins. It might push a little harder or a little slower. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure um, how the media is going to handle it. I, I don't, I'm, hmm. predictions are hard, especially about the future. <laughs> so, so I'm not sure I, I have an answer to that. I think what I think we ought to be worrying about is not, well, what will happen if A does B? I think the thing that we need to be looking around, we need to look around. I get tongue tied. Too many thoughts in my head. Yeah. We need to sit down as people who want to defend some form of liberalism and say, what do we need to do to make our worldview clear and provide a clear contrast with the woke postmoderns? That's what we need to be focused on. I think for us to focus on whether Biden wins or the horse race or whether Trump wins, I mean – There will be people who say, and I understand this, that Trump is the only thing standing between wokists, the woke people, and a complete takeover of government. I I understand that when he – when Trump banned critical theory, the response on Twitter showed that the woke had finally had their bluff called. A politician had mentioned them by name and told them no. That's never happened before. So now they're looking around going, "Uh uh-oh. Um, and I understand that, but I think in terms of the long 20-year game, Trump is not going to defeat wokeness by himself. That's just not going to happen, and people who think that Trump will single-handedly end wokeness are, are, so, are so sadly mistaken. That is, not, <laughs> that is not correct. It's also a mistake to think that wokeness has a political solution. Politic, poli- politics can be used to prevent wokeness from getting into government. You could vote for non-woke people, or if you're a Democrat, you could do a primary challenge of a woke person. I'd, I personally would like to see some some liberal Democrats, uh, who are who are old-school liberals, challenge some of these woke progressives, and and let's have some primaries from from the center. Uh, uh-huh. You know. The, the radicals love to, to primary people and try and beat moderates. Let's have a moderate go in and beat a radical. I'd like to see that. Um, but at the end of the day, um, who was it? Was it? It was this the Scottish philosopher who said, "Give me the songs of a nation, and I care not who writes its laws." Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um if we don't fight the woke everywhere we can in all the ways that we're capable of they're going to keep pushing so we need to start you know getting into the arts and start pushing and start teaching and start showing why that that ideology is so misplaced and, and ill-gotten and wrong right I think that's an absolute necessity I think when people um. Uh, I think we do ourselves a tremendous disservice when we tell ourselves that we're just an election away from the end of wokeness hmm. or that we're, that we're just – that there's a political solution. It's a cultural problem, and it needs a cultural solution.
0: So break out your uh, ukuleles and uh, your bagpipes and uh, get to composing. That's your that's your basic this is the thrust. This is your moral at the end. This is the go troops.
1: Um I don't know. Andrew Fletcher. That was the Scottish politician. Andrew Fletcher. <laughs> I mean, the songs of a nation act like, you're not who writes laws. No, I think I think we have to teach our way out and participate in the culture in a way that we can show our values. Because mm. one of the things that art does is it allows us to model and demonstrate and show that our values are the values that work. And I think that we need we need Art and music and movies that allow us to do that because one of the things that, I mean, postmodernism postmodernism really took off in literary theory, right? So it yeah. got right into the art right away. That's why Brian McLaren, who was one of the early guys in the postmodern church, um, he was an English guy. He learned he was, I believe, he was he graduated from with a bachelor's in English. And I think he actually has his masters too um, before he started a, a church, right? And and he, you know. The, the postmodernism got in through media studies and it gets in through media. Um, and, and that's how it spreads and it radiates and it moves through. So, yeah, I, I would say that we need to be participating and the organs of cultural production need to be either taken back or we need to create new organs of cultural production. And, and we need to be able to defend them. And show why the postmodernism is wrong, so that when someone starts getting on that, people just say, stop it, no, mm-hmm. no, we're yeah. not, no. Let me deconstruct, no, no. <laughs> what, do you, off the top of your head, or deep
0: in the bowels, recesses of your imagination, what's a perfectly anti-woke uh, story, movie, or album? Or, or not even anti-woke, but but supremely liberal or or uh, dis-woke. Mm. Hmm. What could what 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 would be a piece of art that prevails over the woke?
1: Uh, I don't know about a piece of art that prevails over the woke, but some non-woke art. Um, I would say anything from the Renaissance. Hmm. I, I pronounce that interesting from the Renaissance. Renaissance? I can't know. I don't know. Anything from the Renaissance was be good? I'd say. Um, I, I mean, there's some classics like The Lord of the Rings, the poetry of T.S. Eliot. I would I would laud in there. I would toss that in there. Hmm. Um, laud that in there. I don't know if that's the right word. I don't know if that that's a bad use of the word laud. Um, you can lob your lauding. Of T. S. Eliot and do this podcast. Too. Yeah, I, I will laud T. S. Eliot and I will lob him at the woke. Uh, I would, <laughs> I, um, I would say that would be good. I would say um, a movie like there's lots of like you can think of stuff in pop culture too. Like a very movie, like a movie that's not woke might be a good example of a movie that's not woke might be like Remember the Titans. Right, I'm sure that's not woke i mean i just Hmm. i just picked that movie randomly but i think that movie is not woke but but the the importance is not to to make a movie that's not woke the importance is to make good art that that teaches truth i mean like the university used to say we were going to teach the true the good and the beautiful right
0: Hmm.
1: make beautiful art that tells people that 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 shows what is good and what is true I think, I think that's the way to go about it. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think those are the kinds of stories that will persist, right? I think that's one of the reasons why Jordan's talk, Jordan Peterson's talks on mythology were so big, right? We're human beings. We like myth. And I think that we can tell better stories. I do. I think all of their stories that they have right now are deconstructive emotional ploys. Where it's it's you take somebody who's got some identity and you show them being oppressed and then you show them rising up and that's their only story that they have. That's it. That's their they're, they're one trick ponies. Once you show that for what it is. Right. That's when that's when you can start to say, you know what, um, we can start to, to push back against, you know, the idea that oppression is always identity based mm-hmm. that struggle is always based on identity that overcoming and winning is always based on 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 an identity that you hold i would say that i don't know i don't know i mean that's that's kind of where that's a little bit of where i'm coming from i think
0: Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.